Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am your host for this interview. My name is Erica Monahan, and today I have the pleasure of introducing two editors of a wonderful new book. The book is called Foreigners in Muscovy, Western Immigrants in 16th and 17th Century Russia. It is out this year, 2023, from Rutledge Press, and it is edited by two excellent scholars, Simon Dreyer and Wolfgang Mueller. Simon is a PhD candidate at the University of Munster working on urban communities in Muscovy. And Wolfgang Mueller is a professor of Russian history at the University of Vienna. And they, I'm so delighted that they have both joined today to talk about this edited volume. in, and with that, let's get started. In typical, in traditional New Books Network form, I always like to ask our authors to start out by telling us a little bit about how they got into the historical profession. So um, you can, Simon and Wolfgang, you can choose who will go first, but please tell us a little bit about your path into history. Um, my path uh, into history is uh, quite a long one. I started uh, to, or I became interested in history when I was a was a, a young boy, uh, but my interest uh, shifted significantly. Uh, in childhood, I was mainly mainly interested in antiquity. Later, I was was interested in the early modern age. And when I started studying history, it was mainly contemporary history that fascinated me most. And uh, here we have uh, also different uh, geographical uh, points uh, that. Uh, focused my interest uh, and I ended up uh, being a historian uh, of uh, not only contemporary history but also Russian history. Okay, thank you very much Wolfgang. And Simon, tell us about your shorter um, path into history. Yes, it's uh, definitely shorter Um, and it's uh, my entry into studying history was uh, the point that uh, while I was in school and I moved a lot uh, throughout Germany, I somehow missed centuries of history in in school uh, teaching. So uh, my decision was uh, made because I wanted to compensate. (laughs) I wanted to learn what I haven't learned yet. And uh, I soon became interested in early modern history. It was uh, already in the first two semesters uh, in the first year of my studies, so I stayed on that track, and later in uh, the master's studies, I decided to go into Russian history, but still in early modern uh, era. Oh, excellent. I can very much relate to that feeling like just centuries have been skipped. I was educated in America in an American um, public school and, and university system um, where so often it seems like we, you know, we see the medieval era and then we see the industrial revolution, 20th century wars, but all these cent- these centuries in between of the early modern era, which are so critical, um, can get a little bit left out. So I'm delighted to talk to you both about a period in early modern history today. Um, okay, and my next question. So here we've got a, a, an established scholar in Austria and a PhD candidate in Germany who worked did this book together. Please tell me um, how and why you came to do this book together. Well, it's uh, closely connected to my PhD project, which I started in Vienna with uh, Wolfgang as my uh, 
supporter and uh, my actual uh, um, official, uh, how do you say it, um, guide uh, through it. And uh, he suggested to uh, organize a conference or a workshop, as we called it, uh, uh, on my topic, just to, to get to, in contact with all uh, interested scholars uh, who work on the topic of foreigners in early modern Muscovy. So this was the initial step um, Uh, which then led to uh, invitations by pu several publishers on which we had to decide which one uh, we would uh, to which one to which one we would um, agree to publish our the contributions of our uh, workshop uh, that uh, then continued uh, over three years of the project uh, to develop into this book which we now have published early this year. Um, my research interest in this uh, subject is is twofold. Uh, the first uh, route is uh, my interest in the Russian perception of the West. Uh, this is uh, one might say one of the perennial questions of Russian history. Uh, so how the West or how whatever was defined uh, uh, as being the West Latinity or Western Europe or Europe in general uh, was seen from the Russian perspective uh, through the centuries and through the ages. And this was a very important uh, a question that uh, in fact created one of the most important important intellectual debate of Russian history in the 19th century. It was the, uh, the famous debate of the so-called Westernizers and the Slavophils. And uh, so looking into uh, the origins of this Russian perception of the West, and in fact, not only of the West as an idea or as the origin of imports, but as being um, manifested by immigrants from the West, from Europe was uh, the first root of uh, my, my research interest. And it was also uh, this research interest, among other things, Uh, that established uh, the collaboration uh, with uh, with uh, Simon uh, as uh, as uh, a university assistant uh, at my my chair at the University of Vienna, and uh, the second route of uh, my interest in this topic is uh, certainly uh, connected uh, with uh, the history of migration particularly since uh, 2014 uh, this history uh, 2015 this history of, of migration uh, has uh, received or has, has seen uh, an upswing in in general interest uh, as a consequence of the uh, large uh, migration uh, that happened in in uh, that came to Europe uh, in these years. And uh, since then, many historians uh, turned to this issue and uh, making the general public also aware of the historical character of migration, that migration is part of human history or has been part of human history now for, for thousands of years. Uh, and uh, with migration uh, certainly came certain consequences, uh, some positive and some negative, uh, if one wants to, to uh, define conflict as being negative. And so different perceptions and conflicts uh, that emerge out of migration, uh, xenophobia, but also disasters uh, like, like um, uh, pogroms and other things against, against foreigners, uh, they very often had been mentioned in, in the historiography about the Russian attitude towards foreigners. And it was uh, the, second, the second aim of this project also to look into how much uh, we can find about uh, the Russian perceptions of these foreigners actually living uh, on their territories and how much we can find out uh, about uh, the circumstances of their living together side by side uh, throughout uh, two centuries. Thank you so much. Um, yes, indeed, you 
you've tapped into such a, a huge topic. And I, as trained as a historian of early modern Ru Russian empire, um, you know, there's this long tradition that you know about and, and that I've studied that in case our readers don't know, I'll, I'll just, you know, hit some really high points. One of the um, earliest greatest historians of Russian history, V.O. Kluchevsky, he, among many, many works, wrote a book about the tales of foreigners in Muscovy. And it's it, it was a seminal work. And also, um, and many, many have weighed in. And one of the people that's weighed in in our field in recent decades, most importantly, is Marshall Poe, who is, who is the founder of the New Books Network. And Marshall Poe wrote a fantastic book called A People Born to Slavery, Russian and Early Modern European Ethnography. Um, that's been a very important book that's uh, sparked lots and lots of conversation. There's been so many um, and, and so much additional work from the Great Great Britain, Anthony Cross, Russia Under Western Eyes, Larry Wolf looking at Eastern Europe, um, inventing Eastern Europe. Um, there's there's such a tradition in which um, the what foreigners write about Muscovy gets used to explain Muscovy. Um, and so here you are kind of coming into that genre. And yet it, it seems to me that that something different and fresh comes out of this work. And, and I wanted to um, ask you, how do you see your book as contributing something new to this long tradition of thinking about foreigners in Muscovy? Uh, thank you. Yes, we uh, agree that these books uh, by Marshall Poe uh, and other scholars, uh, which took uh, foremost foreign travelers as uh, perspectives uh, are very influential even on on our book of course and of uh, on the um, scholarship on foreigners in Muscovy as well um, what we tried to attempt is to get the focus on those who actually migrated into Muscovy and have uh, had local perspectives on on Russian society and Muscovy society and vice versa uh, how uh, the Russian society uh, perceived Europeans inside their own uh, communities, inside their own uh, cities, um, and try to get uh, scholars together who, who work actually on what foreigners did uh, when they were uh, for more than a few months uh, inside the state of Muscovy. Yeah, as, as Simon has already uh, outlined, uh, we owe a lot uh, to the work of, of Marshall Poe. And that's, that's uh, in uh, recent times, uh, it's not only fascinating, but it's, it's really important. It uh, has been groundbreaking. Uh, and every historian of Russia owes a lot uh, to Vasily Kluchevsky, of course, not only uh, in, in, uh, or with regard uh, to uh, the uh, perceptions of uh, foreigners of uh, the uh, Muscovite state. But as also, as, as, um, as Simon has already indicated, there may be a certain uh, disbalance or imbalance uh, between uh, the sources that have been used. Uh, because the, last major uh, the, the vast majority of uh, works on this topic usually rely on Western sources. And uh, so uh, I was I was fascinated not only by by Simon's project but also by many of the other submissions uh, that came uh, when we sent out this international call for this project and for a conference uh, to rely on. Uh, Russian sources, particularly, so to kind of complement uh, the Western perception uh, of the state of Muscovy and uh, of, of early Russia uh, with the Russian side. Uh, that has been reflected, of course, also in other uh, previous previous uh, scholarship. Uh, but uh, I believe that, uh, or we believe that it was perhaps less than the focus on the Western perception of, of Russia and Muscovy. And so uh, I think that uh, a lot can be drawn from these documents that also don't even uh, focus on 
these perceptions. Sometimes, uh, like like uh, Simon, uh, the research is drawing on on documents that have an entirely different focus, uh, but that reflect uh, the daily reality of foreigners living in the state of Muscovy, and perhaps that's that's one of our our most important uh, contributions to research in that that regard. Thank you so much, both of you. I think I think that's well said, and I and I think that's what jumped out at me about this book is that um, you know we have so uh, importantly, productively used these sources to try and understand more about the Russian state, Russian society, um, and and we've spent a lot of energy in a critical conversation about how we can use these sources. They have their biases, etc., um, and then. Here you have this book where we really just get into the nitty gritty of um, what immigrants are doing in Muscovy. And so with that, maybe we might come back to some more broader questions. But with that, let's let me dig into um, kind of dig into some of the great material in this book. And but I'm going to start out with a little bit of an unfair question that isn't so, so explicitly anywhere. But since you've been working on this, I'm going to I'm going to ask Um I'm going to ask some questions that are a little bit fairly basic, but as as is so often the case in the very distant past um, and has been my experience with Muscovy, often the basics can be pretty hard to establish. But for our audience, be that as it may, um, do we know how many foreigners are in Muscovy in the 17th century um, and what were they doing? Were they mostly diplomats? Were they merchants? Were they mercenary soldiers or officers? Can you What can you tell us in just a general thumbnail sketch about a breakdown of the populations we're talking about? I would try to cover this one. Um, and I have to uh, add that our book tries to cover the 16th and the 17th century. And these are like uh, complete different situations. Uh, in the late 15th and the 16th centuries, we have foremost um, foreign military and f some specialists also related to military uh, uh, weaponry uh, that come into Muscovy by invitation, like um, uh, organized via uh, diplomatic channels, uh, with Russian agents and traveling uh, across European countries and then uh, recruiting personnel abroad or uh, other way around when uh, foreign embassies go come to Moscow that uh, some of them stay and uh, get into Tsarist service. And um, so this is one major group which also continues uh, even more so in the 17th century. But then we have also uh, merchants, uh, which were previously uh, restricted to border towns like uh, Archangels, Astrakhan, uh, Novgorod, and Veliki, uh, but then uh, more and more come into into Moscow itself and settle down there for even generations. Um, and also, we have uh, involuntary migration from uh, deportations from uh, conquered uh, or temporarily. Uh, captured towns, and we have um, also the, all the uh, people which come together as uh, families or servants with the other immigrants. So we have a, a very diverse community from uh, several countries in Western Germany and also Western Europe, and from uh, also from um, other places in in the world, but uh, mostly from Europe. And these. Uh, Persons they they live together uh, in various places inside Muscovy towns, um, and only a few sources uh, uh, enable us to to count them. Uh, for example, uh, lists of, of officers in foreign services uh, exist, or uh, sometimes they get counted when they do uh, tax uh, census. But um, all these data is incomplete, so we have no real numbers. Uh, it has been, has been estimated that about 5,000 uh, individuals uh, is the maximum of any point in the 17th century when uh, uh, of uh, foreigners came together. So uh, I would doubt that this is a complete number because uh, the, all the data is mostly based on military and um, 
local uh, residing uh, persons, uh, which are usually only uh, counting in the household uh, owners and not uh, other members of the um, of the households. But uh, in general, it's it's a large, uh, rather low number. So we have. Uh, um, an overall, um, when we talk of uh, Moscow, an overall uh, population of about 200,000 people in the 17th century, and of them, uh, maybe about 3,000 persons are considered foreign immigrants from uh, Western Europe, or from Europe in general. Uh, perhaps uh, one could add that, uh, in particular in the period uh, in question here in this book, uh, so when we are talking then about the 15th, 16th, uh, 17th centuries, uh, there was a huge fluctuation, uh, not only by migration, but also uh, by what was happening with the uh, towns and with the state or within the state of Muscovy and early Russia. We have to keep in mind that uh, until 1571, the Tatars uh, are... Uh, organizing raids uh, to the capital city. So uh, Moscow itself is being burnt down. Uh, then there is famines. Uh, there is the plague uh, in uh, Moscow and in Muscovy in the 17th century, like in, like in most other, other European uh, countries as well. Uh, then uh, we have uh, kind of, of popular uprisings. Uh, we have uh, parts of the city, which is uh, in general, uh, with the exception of the Kremlin and, and the few churches, a wooden structure. Uh, so large parts of the, of the city being burnt down. Uh, and this all, of course, in particular, uh, the plague and the, and the raids are affecting uh, the number of the population. Uh, the sources here uh, perhaps sometimes are exaggerating, as, as Simon also uh, has pointed out. Uh, there is no general census uh, that we could could rely on, uh, but the sources point to large fluctuations. Uh, so uh, between like thirty thousand and two hundred thousand uh, at at certain points in these two hundred years, uh, there there is a lot uh, of 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 fluctuation and of change in the number of people uh, living in Moscow in the capital city itself, and this also, of course, affects. Uh, to the countryside, not that that much, uh, and sometimes uh, people flee from the uh, from the cities to the outskirts or to smaller towns, uh, and then they return. Uh, but we have to keep in mind that this is a very uh, fluctuating uh, story. It's not comparable to what we what we are seeing uh, uh, with with cities and, and urban history in the more recent uh, period. Oh, that's, that's such a wonderful point. Yes, that, um, that, of course, there's a lot of change in these centuries we're talking about, and they're not static at all. And, and yeah, the late six that the late 16th century is accompanied with these failed harvests and plague that um, Jeffrey Parker in his book Global Climate Climate puts into this larger perspective of the tail end of the mini ice age um, that um, that really precipitates crisis, um, state crises, social crises throughout. Uh, Europe and Asia. And in the case of Muscovite, right, it's followed by, um, I, I don't want to be too simplistic, there's a whole lot of balls in the air here, but essentially state collapse for about a decade before the establishment of the Romanov de, um, dynasty in 1613. So yeah, thank you very much for pointing out that even as we're kind of talking about these centuries, there's a lot of dynamic um, change going on during them. Um, you know, my, my next question, I, I wanted to ask you a question that is drawn entirely from my personal experience um, and um, and just see how you might react to it. It's, it's kind of not, yeah, my, my own personal experience. So in the 90s, in the late 90s, I worked for a Ukrainian-owned uh, company, private company in Moscow. And so I was what you might say one of the part of the shock troops of bringing capitalism to Russia. Um, see how that worked. Um, I used I used to joke about it. But um, 
in in my three years there uh, and observing just what I observe from my own very limited perspective, I'm an American. And so I probably had more interaction with Americans than other ex expats um, and Russians in, in my business time there. That's who I was kind of the clientele I was appealing to often. Um, but one thing that I sort of got an impression about was that in, uh, for example, the real estate industry, that Americans that came from the South seemed to do better than Americans that came from the North in closing real estate deals. And I, I came to just wonder if this might have something to do with culture, with perhaps that Southerners kind of had a little bit more outward um, comfort with uncertainty, if they had a higher prioritization on socialization um, or whatnot. Um, and so this is all neither here or there, but it just points to the question I want to ask you. Do you have any sense in, um, from doing this project that particular foreign groups got on better or worse or contributed more to particular spheres? And, and if so, what might be the driving reasons behind that? I mean, is it technical, religious, cultural? So who wants to maybe... Uh, well, I believe that that's a question, particularly for Simon, uh, since uh, uh, he has done such a such a great job in in uh, pointing to the fact uh, that it's very hard to identify actually where people come from because the terminology uh, sometimes is is very misleading. Uh, so not everybody who is is called a Nimitz, uh, which would in, in contemporary translation of German uh, was actually of German origin. Uh, but uh, I, yeah, I leave that uh, for the beginning now to, to Simon and then perhaps add a few points. Yes, um, I think we can summarize a little uh, or we can point to certain groups uh, which done very well and others which didn't. Uh, for example, um, we have in our book some contributions uh, concerning merchants uh, and uh, in general we can say the Dutch merchants did in the 17th century very well in Muscovy. They were uh, state supported and at the same time had very much support from Amsterdam. So there's a special group uh, of uh, influential uh, parts of the foreign communities which were mixed by profession but um, uh, in certain places in Muscovy dominated by certain groups. And uh, for example, in the northern parts of Russia, it's uh, the merchants which dominate the uh, communities. And so they do very well in, in Muscovy. And also uh, there are the entrepreneurs which uh, are very uh, successful in Muscovy in the 17th century. Uh, and we have a single individual officers which stand out uh, in military service and get very influential in, in Muscovy. We have a few um, of them covered also in, uh, in our book. Um, at the same time, we have, uh, which is not part of our book, which because it has been covered elsewhere, uh, we have, for example, the English merchants, which uh, uh, very much uh, get in conflict with uh, the Moscow state uh, ideology when uh, the uh, glorious revolution in England, England was uh, kind of the um, the reason for Muscovite governments to uh, expel English merchants from Moscow. So um, we have single groups which can stand out, but we, if you look at the um, broader communities, which, as I said, were rather mixed, for example, in uh, we find uh, in close vicinity, we find uh, people from various origin living together and forming uh, confessional groups. Uh, we do not see um, how this has affected over, uh, let's say, national or ethnical or other um, kinds of uh, methods to separate them, which were not very much um, used by Moscovite uh, uh, government to separate them. They, the main point of separation uh, from the orthodox Moscovite uh, government was the religion and the confession of um, the foreign foreigners who were by uh, 
where we were um, identified by their uh, confession. So um, whoever was not orthodox, even if not an immigrant, but a citizen or an inhabitant of Siberia, was called by the same general term for a foreigner. It was in the Zemitz. And um, this also is a problem with the sources. So we not only can uh, always differentiate between immigrants and already a native uh, non-orthodox inhabitants but uh, in the cases we can separate uh, we see that for example the catholics uh, and this is um, also uh, covered in our book um, in, Mary, in various articles uh, are very much suppressed by the state uh, throughout the 17th century after the, uh, the um, time you mentioned um, uh, of complete, almost complete collapse of the Moscovite state in which uh, Poland took, a, took an active role in trying to get uh, access to the Moscovite throne. Uh, after this period, there was a very anti-Catholic because Poland Lithuania's uh, uh, Catholic shaped uh, government um, was seen as a main oppressor in this case, um, very anti-Catholic uh, policy until the end of the 17th century. And so um, in comparison with Protestant communities, they did not well, uh, to summarize it. <laughs> um, perhaps I would, would uh, add uh, one or two points uh, uh, there is a wonderful chapter in this book uh, about the Armenians, uh, for instance, and Armenian merchants had, had uh, settled uh, in Muscovy already for a very long time. They had a very long tradition, uh, in fact. And uh, so that perhaps also contributed to their success. So Armenian merchants, uh, in comparison, as, as Simon pointed out, uh, to the British, uh, who were very successful uh, under, under Ivan uh, IV and then, then later were expelled, uh, Armenians were steady and they, they remained. Of course, uh, they were also... Um, uh, the targets of certain certain attacks, uh, but in general, uh, perhaps uh, they did uh, well for a very long time. Not not uh, uh, not always, but uh, as a group, uh, one should should have a look at them. Uh, then, when you want to compare uh, certain groups uh, with with contributions to certain fields, uh, perhaps one would also think about Protestant Germans and their. Uh, importance in the military uh, as as uh, uh, as officers uh, and uh, later also as as, as commanders uh, so this was as a tradition that became established from the 16th uh, century and then also remained in place uh, the importance of, of uh, Protestant German uh, officers for the Russian military uh, was uh, something that, that certainly left a mark. Uh, my last remark in that regard is, however, that uh, although uh, from the historical perspective, it's, it's important and interesting to look at these groups uh, and collectively to look for who was important there, uh, where, and who was more successful perhaps than, than others, uh, we have to think uh, about uh, also specific individuals. And uh, the later it goes uh, in in times so toward uh, the end of the 18th, uh, end of the, the 17th and toward the early 18th century, uh, we see that there is certainly uh, some some very important uh, figures, uh, immigrants uh, who made rocket-like careers in the Russian state. The Russian state tried to recruit many people by office, not only of privileges, uh, but also for, well, as, as, a, as a country where you could make either a fortune or build a career. And that was certainly uh, something that, that people, even from very far remote places like Africa uh, would uh, try to do uh, and also achieve when we think 
uh, for instance, about the great grandfather of of uh, the famous poet uh, Alexander Pushkin, uh, who came from Africa. It was not a voluntary uh, immigrant; he was was uh, sold as a slave, uh, but then he was freed uh, by by Tsar Peter, and uh, he made a fascinating career, ending up uh, as the general inspector of all the fortifications of the Russian Empire. Uh, and uh, so we also have to look not only from the coll- collective or through the collective prism, but also uh, look at certain individuals. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, you um, you just touch on this massive, um, uh, this wonderful point. And I just think how it um, this thread runs through my research. I studied these very old maps of Siberia right now, and I found evidence that Pushkin's predecessor and engineer inspecting fortifications checks out a bridge way out in far eastern Eurasia. And I'm also part of these maps is um, Andre Vinius, whose father was one of these um, Dutchmen that came to Russia and made a terrific career for him for himself. Um, so, yeah, the, so, um, it's such it's such a wonderful thread to explore. And yeah, thank you so much that I, I will just, um, you know, we won't have time here today to talk about all of these articles. But um, speaking of the foreign mercenaries, there's this Oleg Rusakovsky has this really nice article about foreign mercenaries and the Russian um, population in the 1630s, around the time of the Smolensk War. And then there's um, Iskra Schwartz has Schwartz has this really nice article um, about the um, engineers down in Azov um, and the building of Taganrog near the Crimea. Um, so th- there's, yeah, there's, re- I really enjoy just how rich this, this collection is as well as, and you mentioned the Armenian community, which I thought is just fascinating. I mean, I'm, um, and you talk about their longevity and into my mind pups, um, Stephen Rieg's recent book about um, the, the construction of the Russian Empire in the 19th century. Armenians play play a role in that. But um, but I wanted to um, just give a shout out to this article by Alexander Osipian um, with a wonderful title, Playing Chess with Boris Gudunov and Living in a Guest House. Attitudes towards Armenian merchants in early modern Muscovy, and I really I love that article because, as um, you know, my first book was about merchants, and so I did spend um, some time really trying to understand this concept of the guest house that foreigners come and stay in. How particular is it to Muscovy? It's not, um, and and I really like the way that this article kind of delves into um, how we have this kind of conflation between diplomatic guest houses and merchant guest houses. Well, of course, in the early modern period, diplomacy and trade are fellow travelers, so it makes perfect sense. But um, but I, I thought that was a wonderful article. Speaking of um, kind of digging in, the, um, I thought that maybe in... Um, let me dig into some of the specifics. There's three sections in this, in this book. Your first section is about immigration, settlement, and integration. Um, the second section is about is titled Interaction, Conflict, and Cooperation. And then the third section um, is titled Communication and Perception. And so in that first section, Simon, you have an article here about, speaking of real estate and foreigners in Muscovy. So would you please tell us, tell our our listeners about your article? Yes, uh, of course. Um, I wrote this article um, with uh, a special uh, intention to to find out uh, how actual neighborhood interactions might work and then found out during the way, and, and it was not the first to point it out, but uh, I found some uh, interesting clues about it, um, that uh, most of the uh, more tensionous uh, conflicts arousing of in neighborhood uh, situations are not only the religious one, but also the ones con- uh, connected with property of uh, houses and also who lived in the houses, which was not uh, directly part of my um, uh, article here. But uh, the ownership of um, houses in Moscow in the first half of the 17th century was a special situation uh, in comparison with the rest of the uh, uh, time we look at in our volume, because in this uh, about 40 years, um, 
the old structures which had been built uh, in 16th century uh, for foreigners who immigrated voluntarily or involuntarily, uh, which were some kinds of um, from in governmental formed communities uh, in uh, in suburbs. Um, they dispersed in the time of uh, Smuta in the um, early 17th century and then uh, were re-established in a new form in the second half of the 17th century. And in between, um, there was uh, no um, alternative for foreigners than to live throughout the, the city. So uh, it caused many of... Uh, administrative and many of uh, everyday interactions and inter, uh, solutions for to reason uh, to problems which arose in this uh, phase in which they just were able to choose a, a house and buy it if it was free uh, and if they had the money for it uh, without uh, the Muscovite government uh, having to to point a certain place for them. Um, and even the uh, documents which uh, foreigners who entered Tsarist service received didn't indicate a place where they could live, but they uh, just um, uh, granted money to buy a house. And so there were certain er uh, areas in Moscow which uh, foreigners preferred to live in and others uh, in which uh, other individuals can be traced uh, not living uh, in the vicinity of other uh, natives or uh, in foreigners in this case. You know, and, if I, um, if, I'm sorry, yes. Simon, if I could just interrupt you for one moment there, what you're saying here strikes me as, um, well, I think of Bernard Balin, the great American early modern histor historian who wrote about the Massachusetts Bay Colony and foreign merchants coming to um, the Massachusetts Bay Colony didn't have that sort of freedom to be able to live anywhere. And and yet, you know, in so much of my reading of Muscovite history, the message is that it's this very closed, xenophobic society. So right there, what, what you've just said kind of complicates um, this this received picture of Muscovy. But I'll just, oh, sorry, I couldn't resist interjecting with that. Please continue. Uh, yes, uh, I agree that this is an exception uh, and it's a temporary one mm -hmm. because uh, we have then conflicts arousing uh, in the 1640s, which uh, in the end lead to this new separation uh, with the establishment of a separate suburb in uh, 1652. Uh, and these conflicts are partly uh, of religious character. As these are the more, as I would say, influential petitions from uh, priests and from the patriarch himself, uh, uh, who had his decrease of separating foreigners from native Orthodox inhabitants. Um, but there were also conflicts around uh, how the housing market and most of the changes in uh, Muscovite legislative uh, tradition uh, in the end of this phase uh, in the mid of seven, uh, 17th century uh, were related to where and uh, from whom uh, foreigners could buy houses. And it was restricted um, first certain areas, uh, areas of Moscow uh, for foreigners to, to buy uh, property. And then it was restricted uh, if that they couldn't buy from anyone who is orthodox. So the houses would not change um, in this manner. Um, and also, which was seemingly m more important in, in the documents I have uh, uh, looked at, is that uh, the taxation status of the houses was very important. So a house which was already tax-free uh, could be owned by a foreigner because they were also tax-exempt. Uh, but uh, if they tried to acquire a house which was not tax-exempted, uh, they wouldn't uh, the Muscovite administration would deny it because then a house less on the tax roll would uh, provide uh, a problem for the overall taxation uh, in the city uh, and especially in the districts concerned. So there are many conflicts um, which are not directly uh, tied to xenophobia but to everyday and uh, fiscal problems which uh, involved in this um, in these conflicts which uh, then 
when religious uh, arguments entered the uh, the petitions were then uh, quite um, uh, led to quite restrictive new uh, legislation. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. That. Um, so what I hear part of what I hear you saying is the state doesn't want to jeopardize its revenue in this age when it's trying to fund bigger, more technical armies, et cetera. And so that's um, something that it really turns on. And, and I, um, and, oh, Wolfgang. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. I just wanted to uh, to to add a few few words uh, because you asked us before about the contribution of this volume, and I believe that's uh, really where the quality of this volume is uh, in in trying to help to uh, better calibrate uh, how. Uh, this uh, alleged uh, Muscovite xenophobia uh, emerges and and is composed, or what components it is composed of, and suddenly uh, we see these two components uh, that that Simon mentioned uh, just now. Uh, we see them uh, through many different different chapters and contributions, and one uh, being the more ideological component, so orthodox anti-Western propaganda. Uh, starting off from the Great Schism and then from the failed uh, church union of the 15th century and being very intense and being against Western cultural influences, uh, leading then to uh, the expulsion uh, of groups, the expulsions of certain cultural transfers, uh, like of, of uh, secular music, theater, and all these kind of things uh, of the 17th century, also uh, leading to restrictions to uh, everyday religious practices of uh, of uh, the immigrants, uh, so the issue of whether people are uh, allowed to have a church uh, or not, or to have services uh, outside uh, in 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 free space or whatever. So that would be uh, one component, and the other. Uh, and here is, uh, I believe, Simon's Simon's contribution uh, extremely important. Uh, also having these everyday issues of people. Uh, belonging or considering uh, themselves to belong to certain groups and uh, bickering or struggling about some everyday issues coming up, like uh, who is supposed to buy what and who has what privileges. Uh, it is envy of these privileges that have been granted to foreigners. Uh, it's the issue of who is supposed to be a servant in a foreigner's household, for instance, and then uh, also uh, perhaps uh, linking these these issues, uh, these everyday issues with the more ideological uh, background, the religious practices. And uh, to, it's, but it's, it's extremely difficult uh, to say uh, what of these two general groups uh, feeding into xenophobia is more important at what, at what time. But nevertheless, it's very important to keep at least both of them. Perhaps there is even more. Uh, but both of them in mind and to say it's not simply ideology it's it's not only uh, bickering about uh, who is buying my my uh, house or home uh, and whom can I, can I sell it to and would these foreigners have some tax privileges uh, it seems to be both and this feeds into uh, one feeds into the other and one is using arguments on of the other side or of the other group uh, kind of framing some very real uh, issues of of property into more ideological framing uh, into some religious framing for instance and uh, it's it's very important to keep both sources uh, in mind and uh, also to to include them in the discussion thank you so much I, yeah it's so important there's moving you know moving parts we're not we're we're um you know Muscovy is not an entity that observes separation of church and state in the committed way that the United States of America, for example, is explicitly founded upon. Um, and yet the church and, and, and the state there, there are there are some fault lines between them. I know even in my research in Siberia, um, um, I study Muslim merchants from Central um, Asia that immigrated into the Russian Empire, settled in Siberia, conducted trade. 
and they seem to have their houses pretty much close to each other. Um, until, and then every now and then in the documents, we see a high-ranking church official passes through and says, this is untenable, we can't have this. Um, and then decades later, we have a high-ranking church official coming through and saying the same thing, um, which tells us that that the, that kind of ideological orthodox perspective, maybe about purity and separation, isn't obtaining throughout. I mean, and I encountered a wonderful um, example as well of a um, a Lamaist translator on a diplomatic mission to um, a nomadic group in the 17th century along the way saying, I would like to convert to orthodoxy. And the leaders of the expedition say, oh, okay, so here we are, Muscovy, orthodox state. And they write back, he wants to convert. And, and the leaders send back, they say, do not let him convert now. He can get religion on his own time. Now he is going to be an intermediary helping us communicate with these people. Um, and so, yeah, when you we kind of look under the hood, um, the picture is a little bit more complicated. And, and I guess, the, I mean, the backdrop of all this is I think we are now in this um, moment where Russia is waging war against Ukraine and feeding its population um, a steady propagandistic media diet of understanding that they are in an existential battle against the West that wants to destroy them. And I just wonder, you know, someday someone will, if writes a history of what um, kind of, if someone to, were to kind of try and measure xenophobia in Russia in 1640 versus uh, 2040, how, how that picture might look. Um, at any rate, your book gives us um, great material to kind of think about these questions. And um you know, actually, though, I want to, um, if I could, I want to ask you too. There's, there's great stuff in here, um, and we don't have too much more time. But let me ask you this question: um, You talked a little bit about Jesuits, and there, there, um, there's this Kachigorov has this great article, Jesuits in Smolensk. Um, and so, you know, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about these Catholic missionaries in Muscovy and their experience that Kachigorov is talking about, please. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, you've picked uh, an excellent article in our book because it was um, kind of hard to place it in our structure because it uh, captures aspects of all three parts we have. Uh, it's also about settlements. It's also about uh, interactions and communication. Uh, so we choose to add it in, in the part of interaction in the second one um, because uh, it's very much about uh, how the Jesuits uh, priests were uh, connected with the people uh, in Smolensk, which became uh, again Russian uh, under Russian authority uh, in the mid 17th century after the war with uh, Poland Lithuania. And uh, it had. Uh, a Catholic uh, community in it, uh, which were not allowed by Muscovite uh, law to have their own priests and their own churches, uh, but could, because it was very near to the border, rely on Jesuits coming from Poland, Lithuania. So they have they're very interconnected. They have very much interaction with uh, people from abroad, with foreigners, uh, which are only temporarily uh, coming to. Uh, Smolensk, and at the same time, it was um, a matter of how uh, they could communicate uh, with the Muscovite authorities that they are still living within the uh, restrictions of the law. Uh, by, for example, which I found very interesting and which we have touched uh, earlier, um, that the Smolensk noblemen, which themselves declared to have uh, converted to orthodoxy, uh, only uh, asked for allowance to have Jesuit priests come over uh, for their servants, which was uh, imported, uh, so uh, to say, from Poland, Lithuania as well. So um, the status of servants in this matter was also a matter of um, who can convert and who, who must convert to orthodoxy in this context, uh, and it was used uh, from both sides as an as an uh, possibility to get around uh, the restrictions. And at the same time, Jesuits were um, we have touched it also earlier uh, as 
generally as Catholics uh, under the same restrictions, but they were especially suspect to the state of Muscovy because uh, their missionary uh, attempts uh, in Muscovy and as known in, in the world uh, to Muscovy via uh, their reading of uh, contemporary newspapers and so on uh, was one reason because they um, very uh, restrictive allowed single Jesuits and then uh, even expelled them after uh, some years when they found that they had been uh, influencing the Smolensk noblemen or in Moscow they had tried to uh, establish a mission uh, to convert uh, Orthodox or non-Orthodox non-Christian population of Moscow. Uh, So in, in this context, this article uh, by Kochegarov uh, is very interesting in trying to analyze uh, which race uh, were possible at the, at a border town, which uh, was is something that we have uh, uh, as an exempt, uh, uh, ex- exception from the other articles, which are more centralized in, um, uh, inside uh, Moscow. Um, uh, how in such a border town uh, people tried to uh, get around the restrictions or um, how the Moscovite government uh, even allowed this or in, in certain in, uh, circumstances then established new restrictions and tried to force out the Jesuits they had previously, previously allowed to come. Yeah. Thank you. It is that so many complicated dynamics, the confessionals, the Jesuits are their own, um, you know, inner world of kind of global outreach. And then in this borderland town of Smolensk that goes back and forth across the centuries, it just, um, it's picking up a lot in that one small article. So thank you. We, um, gosh, I'd like to ask, I want to ask you, um, you have this great article about Mikhail Glinsky um, in it. Um, maybe maybe tell us a little about this, because we don't really hear this, you know, early, early Renaissance history. I mean, we can place it in the Renaissance, right? Let's tell us a little bit about Mikhail Glinsky and what's going on in this article. Yes, I, I think uh, to... Uh, connected with one thing we have talked about earlier about individuals which uh, managed to get a career in Moscow or in early uh, Petrine uh, Empire. Uh, this is one of the earliest examples of a person which uh, left uh, documents we can study uh, to achieve a certain high position and uh, struggling with the identity of being um, from a different uh a community of uh, of a different religion, and then uh, having to uh, to decide uh, on which in, in which three years he, he he will would enter uh, the terms under which uh, foreigners in Moscow had to live. Um, at the same time, it's uh, like the contrast point uh, to these later examples uh, Wolfgang already mentioned. Um, that the expectations of Glinsky when he uh, expected to, because of his no, his knowledge and his uh, his uh, connections in, in Poland, Lithuania, that he would be a valuable member of the uh, court of the um, Grand Prince of Moscow, uh, that these expectations were, well, not all met by uh, the reality of um the uh, or, um, the government not sozusagen allowing him um, to live out all his freedoms he was uh, used to in the earlier uh, situations. Okay. Um, if, if, yeah. Yes. Uh, no, perhaps uh, just a, a few words. Uh, uh, perhaps this shows that uh, immigration, also for the immigrants themselves, is a very dangerous thing. Uh, not only could they uh, fall targets or, or victims of, of popular violence, but also if they belong to nobility or if they made a career, uh, they could certainly uh, lose uh, the Tsar's favor. Or if the Tsar uh, or the Empress, when we go into the 18th century, died, uh, then someone who had become a minister, uh, even uh, the 
we would call the prime minister even today uh, could uh, be deported uh, or, or, or killed or sent to Siberia. Uh, so immigration uh, into into Muscovy and, and Russia is in early modernity and remains in, 19, in in 18th century Russia still a very dangerous affair and then I would also want to respond uh, to to a remark that you that you made earlier uh, with regards to uh, a contemporary state propaganda uh, opposing Russia against the West. And when we look into history, uh, on the state level, this is a very untypical uh, phenomenon. Uh, I mean, we see it in in uh, the USSR, in the Soviet Union. Uh, we see it at certain points uh, in early modernity, but in general, uh, the early modernity state is open to immigration and in favor of immigration. When we don't talk about specific groups uh, like uh, the Jewish community, which is banned uh, from entering uh, Muscovy until a very late point in time, but otherwise it's the Tsar or the Grand Prince uh, who uh, stimulates, who even invites immigration because he needs uh, soldiers and he needs experts. Uh, it's rather uh, orthodoxy, it's the clergy, and it's later from the uh, from uh, the 18th century onwards. It's a part of the nobility uh, that is anti-Western, and that later on in the 19th century leads into this anti-Western debate, uh, which uh, remains very important and influential. But we have to recognize that only at a very few points in history, it was the state uh, that led this anti-Western propaganda. Sometimes the state followed pressure from Orthodox Church, and in general, it didn't question it. Uh, but it was a rather an orthodox affair, and later it was uh, it was uh, nobility uh, who led this anti-Western uh, effort, uh, and it was not uh, the Tsar or the Emperor. Thank you so much. I think that's an excellent place to um, to stop. And there's so much more in this book. I encourage readers to check it out themselves, foreigners in Muscovy, and um, and yeah, these are you know how how we talk about the past and the present in interaction with with each other, um, it matters so much. We see it's it's a considerable part of what Putin's doing and 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 how how does one do it well? And I and that's one of the reasons I'm really glad to get to talk to you about your book today because I think it's one of these uh, um it's this piece of work that lets us get into the nitty-gritty to have information with which to think about these big issues and data points to start to kind of think about what trends do or don't exist in Russian history and where things get different um, and where things, um, you know, have, have, a, have a deeper past. Now, um, so thank you so much for talking to me. But before I do let you go, in traditional New Books Network fashion, I would like to ask um, both of you to tell, um, to tell us about your current project, what you're working on now. And if I could, Wolfgang, I'd want to um, talk with you because one thing, um, if, if it went unnoticed by readers, I, I really um, uh, noticed and so admire that your wheelhouse is more contemporary history. And here you've teamed up with an early modernist to do this earlier project, um, which I just think is is a really fruitful way to go about history. We, um, as I'm involved with the founding of history, ex silo to get us out of our silos and you are doing exactly that. Um, so yeah, what are you working on? Well, I found it very refreshing. And in fact, I teach Russian, Russian history from the beginning to the end. Uh, so, uh, and uh, and uh, uh, Simon and I also had a, a number of, of fascinating classes at university together. And I, in fact, I'm, I'm uh, still learning a lot uh, with regard to, to, to early modern or medieval, if one can use that term, uh, Russian history. And uh, so uh, my, my next or one of my next projects, uh, in fact, is one of the reasons why I was interested in this early modern affair. Uh, so it's going to be uh, 
looking into or deeper into the roots of uh, anti-Westernism as we see it then from the late 18th and early 19th century emerging. Uh, so where does it come from? And in fact, uh, what is this xenophobia that we read about uh, so frequently uh, in in the histories about uh, early modern Russia? Uh, what is it all about? And uh, so uh, I, I'm very grateful uh, for this project and for this book and also for Simon's contribution and all other contributions. Uh, it was very, very uh, stimulating for me and it's certainly going to feed into uh, this next project of mine. But before I'm going to do that, I still have to, to finalize something uh, that more that relates to contemporary history again. Uh, it's going to be a documentary volume uh, on uh, on Euro communism, uh, so on a, a very uh, a trend in, in in Western European communism uh, of uh, the 1970s, and here in particular, then on uh, I'm I'm uh, curating and editing the chapter uh, with Soviet documents on Euro communism together with with a Russian colleague, and that's going to be finalized soon. Uh, now we received funding for this, and then it's gonna go go into print. Thank you. Super. And Simon, we'll give you um, the last word. What can we expect next from you? Well, I hope uh, you can expect for me to finish my visit, uh, my PhD project, um, which is, as you know, about uh, foreign communities and local perspectives uh, in Muscovy in the 17th century, uh, which will highly... Uh, uh, focused, being highly focused on uh, the um, different actor, actors and different uh, spaces of, of foreign migration. And for for example, I try to get more into uh, the history of involuntary migration to Moscow in, this, in particular, but maybe in, or even generally. Um, and this is a project idea for an upcoming project to get more uh, information about um, how uh, involuntary migration worked in early modern uh, spaces in different directions and with different motivations and how we can get information on uh, people that are usually not as much uh, documented at uh, in contemporary sources. Okay. Thank you so much. I will look forward to um, reading both of those. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. And I um, trust that our audience will very much appreciate your time and work on this as well. Have, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.